This is week two of our, our new prayer series, and the aim is to help us understand how to pray better so that we can be more comfortable praying and be more willing to pray. And if you peer at the center of any relationship with God, and that both goes for the, the individual and for a, a church, a church body's relationship with God, if you peer into the center, you'll find at the heart is prayer. It is a vital, vital activity. Prayer is what determines how well we'll rely on God, how well we're guided by God, how well we'll grow strong and confident in our relationship with our Creator. Prayer is what allows us to confess our sins and be renewed and empowered by God to live life well. Prayer is what allows us to rid ourselves of fear and worry. Prayer is what helps us to shake off faulty measurements and judgments that all the grumpy and unloving people around us give to us. Prayer is what reminds us that we're created in God's image. Prayer is what helps us to remember that the same God who breathed the cosmos into existence is deeply concerned about you and cares for you. In prayer, we see both a holy God and a heavenly Father who wants to renew us and guide us to living a life of significance for Him. It's the power source of faith. So this morning, we're looking at the second movement in the Lord's Prayer in order to learn more about prayer. Last week, we looked at our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. This week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To help us start out, let's look at how the Heidelberg Catechism looks at this. And I got to say, I'm, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the Catechism. It's a great document. And, and it actually, um, it, it, even though it was written in a specific context, in a specific point of history, its application continues on through the ages. But the Lord's Prayer is is especially uh, phenomenal when it comes to addressing our culture today. And so keep that in mind as we look at question and answers 123 and 124 from the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the second request mean? Thy kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. I just want to stop there and say that is incredibly simple, incredibly beautiful. Can you call that back? The kingdom, thy kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. I hope my sermon is as clear and as powerful as that answer. Let's continue. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. What does the third request mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all men to reject our own wills. And we're going to focus on this this morning. To reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. Your will alone is good. Help everyone carry out the work he is called to as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. This is beautiful. It's short and sweet. I hope I can expand on this these two concepts a bit by looking at our Bible passage for this morning. It's, it's an account of uh, a, a piece of John the Baptist. Uh, you know, it really focuses in on John the Baptist, and it's from Matthew 11, 1 through 6, and then 11 through 15. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, 
Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I tell you the truth, Jesus continues, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Sorry, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's uh, ask for God's help in understanding his text. Heavenly Father, we come to you again needing your illumination. So, Father, we ask you, you to pour out your spirit as we look at this text and apply this text. Father, help us to know more about you and how you operate. Know, know more about your desires so that we can follow you more closely, express your love more fully, and live the life that you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine for a second, and I know this is going to be a huge stretch for some of you, especially for you ladies, but imagine for a second, cross the historical divide, the cultural divide, um, and imagine for a second that you are John the Baptist. Okay? Try to understand from a first-person perspective what's going on here. Here's the deal. Right from the beginning... You have been set apart by God. In fact, we're, believe it or not, we're approaching the Advent season. It's just, a, it's just several weeks away. The last Sunday in November is the first Sunday in Advent. Christmas is coming. And so, um, by the way, I had a shocking reminder of this. I was picking out a Halloween accessory for my kids in Target, and I moved one aisle over, and all of a sudden, boom, there's all this Christmas decorations. I thought, oh. Uh, but anyways... We are approaching the Advent season, and uh, somewhere along the line, you'll probably hear the story of John the Baptist, and the story about how Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom and dad, uh, were unable to have kids. And uh, John the Baptist is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Zechariah is a priest, and it's time for him to do uh, his, his uh, temple duties, and so he's, um, he comes into the temple, and while he's there, an angel shows up. And uh, let me just read you real quick that, that account from, from Luke chapter 1. An angel appeared, and Zachari- when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. And the angel said, don't be afraid. Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord. Man, isn't that cool? So Zechariah gets this prophecy, but you know what? He doesn't believe it. He's lived all his life unable to have kids, and he doesn't believe it. And the angel says, this is a sign of your unbelief. You will not be able to speak, and he, he, he becomes mute. And he leaves the temple, and he's trying to tell everybody about the, the uh, angel, he, uh, the whole experience, and he can't do it. He has to write things down and try to gesture. 
and he isn't able to speak again until John is born. But sure enough, Elizabeth um, conceives and is growing this baby boy in her womb. About six months into it, another girl, Mary, um, a relative of Elizabeth, gets a visit from an angel. And you know this one. The angel says, you're going to have a son. and He's going to be the one we've all been waiting for. He's going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the, the world. Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. And as she is walking in the house, John, this little baby, um, in his, probably in his second, maybe beginning of the third trimester, leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Even in Elizabeth's womb, and even though Jesus is really just an embryo in Mary's womb, John recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the one. It's an amazing story. It's incredible the, the details that are included in this story, and I'm glad the Bible includes it. But just know this. Right from the get-go, you are all John the Baptist. Right from the get-go, you know that Jesus is the one. You are, you, God has poured out his spirit on you, and you are in touch with God. So he, you were earmarked from day one as God's man to be the forerunner for the Messiah, the, the, the Messiah, the one who will bring restoration and redemption to Israel. You're the guy who will be firing the starting gun for God's new and incredible work on earth. So you're disciplined. You are determined. You are making wise choices as you grow up. And you take on a, a life of asceticism, almost like a monk before there were monks. And you live a life of self-induced poverty and chastity, and obedience. And then God lets you know that it's time to start preaching. And so you begin this public speaking ministry. And people begin to respond, first by the tens, then by the hundreds, then by the thousands. People are pouring out from all walks of life to come and hear you. The rich, the poor, the middle class, the religious and the non-religious they're all coming out to hear you and to be baptized. A baptism that the Bible says is for repentance, a sign of renewal, a sign of commitment to God. You are excited. Your ministry is culminating. You are hitting your stride. And then one morning, as you're in the Jordan River baptizing folk, you see Jesus walking down. And it's almost as if you couldn't even decide on your own. As soon as your eyes hit Jesus... God said, this is the one. And he, as he comes down to you, you're feeling a little bit humbled. And then a little bit confused that Jesus says, will you baptize me? And you say, Lord, I'm the one that's supposed to be baptized by you. But Jesus insists, and so you do it. And as you baptize Jesus, the clouds break up, the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit flutters down onto Jesus like a dove descending. And then a voice from heaven in your own language, thunders out, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You baptize Jesus, and as you're walking together out of the river, you feel like mission accomplished. You feel like your life's work has culminated, and you have done what you were born to do. You have a feeling like now you can wait and watch. Jesus' popularity skyrockets instantly. Some of your disciples leave you to follow him, but you're not saddened by this because this is what you were born for. 
You are to be the front runner. And here comes the Messiah. Jesus goes on to teach and to heal and to perform miracles. It's all working according to plan. It's all exceeding your expectations. But then one afternoon, your life begins to unravel. Herod decides to arrest you. He didn't like what you are saying. And so he arrests you and throws you in an uncomfortable, dark, dingy, cold cell. And many scholars say that John the Baptist was arrested for about one year, approximately one year. Some say 12 to 14 months based on the events that are surrounding the passage. That's a long time. I mean, I've been here for a year and a half. John the Baptist, the herald of of the Messiah, the forerunner of Jesus, gets thrown in a jail and day turns into week. Weeks turn into months. The months stack up. That's a long time to be wondering, Lord, why do you have me in this cell? Lord, when are you going to rescue me? What about the kingdom of God? Where is it? Is he the one? In fact, John tells his disciples through the prison bars, go ask Jesus. You know, maybe he's forgotten about me. He's been busy. Maybe he never even heard I was in prison. Go ask Jesus. Is he the one? Give him a little prompt for me. Or, or we'd expect someone else. That's the background for our passage. Can you feel the tension and and the anguish that John is feeling? Have you ever felt like John? The economy has personally affected your family. And life just isn't the same. It's a struggle. Your health is not where you ever expected it to be, and you're suffering. Your kids, or maybe your adult parents, are nowhere near where you expected them to be. Your marriage is stale. It's not where you expected it to be. Your boyfriend broke up with you. You hate school. Whatever the situation. You see, you've been doing your part all along. You go to church. You put money in the offering plate. You try to honor God with your life as best as you could. You're doing your part. So where is God? Is he the one? Well, let's continue our reading see how Jesus responds to John's request. Jesus' response is a reference of the Messiah from the Old Testament um, prophet Isaiah. It's a, it's a reference that all the Jews would know. Remember, they are occupied by the Romans. They are not free. They are not their own. It's a reference that all the Israelites would know, and especially John would know. John is probably using this as a benchmark to see if Jesus is really the one. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 says this, and this is what Jesus, the passage Jesus is referring to. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. I can imagine John, when his disciples 
come back say, yeah, 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 I know about the poor, the lame, the deaf, I know all about that. But what about verse 4? What about first, verse 4? Where's vengeance and divine retribution? Verse 4 says, be strong, don't fear, your God will come. He will come to save you. Well, where is he? I'm still in this prison. I've been in here for 365 days. I'm wasting away. This is the thing that John was missing in our prayer this morning. He was missing that three-letter word, that powerful three-letter word that's used twice that makes all the difference. Thy. It's not my. It's not my friends. It's not my parents. It's not my churches. It's thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The disciples say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Pray, our Father in heaven, perfect, loving Father, full of concern, caring. Holy is your name. You're all powerful. You're completely other. Your ways aren't like ours. You're unstoppable. You're unchanging. You're completely holy. Then pray like this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Those two phrases are one of the most powerful phrases and life-altering prayers you could pray, especially if you pray them on a regular basis every day. Basically, when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you're saying, Lord, have your way in my life. Forget about how I want it to operate. Have your way. On one hand, it's an incredible, incredible privilege to pray this prayer. We small, insignificant human beings who are here today and gone tomorrow can have the audacious opportunity to pray for the loving creator, the heavenly father's will to be done in our lives. Let's not move too quickly past the good things in this passage. Jesus replies, go back and report to John what you see. The blind receive sight. The human race has been working on the problem of blindness forever. The eye is one of the most complex pieces of equipment on the planet. We can fix a lot of things, but we haven't been able to fix blindness. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. There's two elements here that Jesus is showing that his kingdom is coming. First, is that amazing miracles are taking place. People are being healed of very debilitating stuff. But maybe even more significant than all that, even more outstanding is that people who are considered defective, people who are considered so far from God, people who are even considered cursed by God, are being restored and embraced into God's reign, God's presence here on earth. This is the sign that the kingdom of God has come and that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. God's redemptive love and grace and power is being poured out on the religious? No, on everyone, on anyone willing to receive it. That's why Jesus says, blessed is the man that doesn't fall away on account of me. 
He's hanging out with the tax collectors. He's hanging out with the prostitutes. He's hanging out with the morally bankrupt. And he's bringing them into God's presence. And they are experiencing restoration from the Heavenly Father. Despite popular belief, Jesus would say, despite what our religious leaders are telling you, God cares for everyone. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the outcasts, the have-nots. Blessed are those who are spiritually hungry because they are in for an all-you-can-eat banquet. Way better than old country buffet. Jesus has revealed in a powerful and personal way God's kingdom. And its redeeming, renewing, restoring ways are infectious. And everyone is getting in on it. That's why Jesus is talking, what Jesus is talking about when he says, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom is forcefully advancing. It's like an atomic explosion. It's a, like a mushroom cloud with waves of restoration, well-being, and wholeness shock-waving outwards. So on the one hand, we have this incredible privilege, the incredible blessing to play, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But on the other hand, it's a very daring, it's a very bold, it's a very dangerous prayer to pray. But it's the prayer Jesus wants us to pray. I've heard many times growing up from well-meaning teachers and pastors like myself, that says, that say, there's nothing safer than being in the center of God's will. Have you heard that before? There's nothing safer than being in the center of God's will. Well, let me tell you this, this morning that that is just not true. There's nothing safer than being in the center of God's will. Tell that to John the Baptist. We know what eventually happens. The king orders John's execution. He's beheaded. And his head is served up on a platter to the one who requested it. There's nothing safer than being in the center of God's will is just false. I can say that for certain, praying for God's kingdom come, God's will to be done, right here in our lives, is both a wonderful and a terrifying thing. It can cause us to love until it hurts. It can cause us to sacrifice our petty desires and pursuits for his redeeming purposes. It can cause us to take our money and generously help others with it. It can cause us to take our talents and our educations and squander it on making a difference and solving problems and restoring communities and restoring lives. It can cause us to extend forgiveness to those who intentionally wronged us. It can cause us to reach across burnt bridges. It can cause us to reach across racial barriers. It can cause us to stand up for the workplace scapegoat, even though we may lose some friends. It can cause us to stand up for what is right, even though it may harm us. It's a prayer that if we pray it, and we mean it, God will take action. And we'll go on a wondrous, eventful, satisfying pleasure ride that will also bring heartache, sacrifice, and suffering. 
The disciples ask Jesus to pray, and Jesus says, okay, pray like this. First, remember who you are praying to. You're praying to an incredible heavenly father who will never leave you or forsake you, who loves you more deeply than anyone in your life. You're praying to a heavenly father who's also holy, completely other. He breathed the universe into existence. He hardwired all of creation. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's all that and more. First, know who you are praying to. Then once that's clear in your mind, ask for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done right here in your heart, in your family, in your life. That's a hard thing to pray. But remember, we don't just follow a a Savior who says, do it. I want you to pray this. I want you to do it. No, we follow a Lord who does it first. And if you remember, on that Thursday night before that Friday where Jesus is crucified, he's in the garden, and he's praying in anguish. In fact, Mark says that he's praying so much that blood is sweating through his tear ducts. In anguish, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He knows the, the awfulness of Friday. But he says, what? He says, not my will, but thy will. He's praying the very prayer that he's having all of us pray. We serve a Savior who doesn't just say do it. He does it first on our behalf. And he experiences the worst so that God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. And that even though God may call us to difficult things, even even though God may call us to extreme love, extreme generosity, extreme sacrifice, extreme service, we have the omnipotent, all-powerful, heavenly Father guiding us, supporting us, encouraging us, upholding us. So as we head off to our, our prayer closets, when we pray during the day, I don't know why we say that, prayer closets. I don't have a prayer closet. When we pray next time, know that you serve a loving Heavenly Father who is completely holy and pray for His will to be done in your life. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ.